this is Metal Mike, and if you thought hard rock and heavy metal was over in 1991, you are sadly mistaken. Me and my buddy Ryan are here to prove otherwise with our top 10 hard rock and heavy metal albums from 1991. There are so many great releases from this year, it's unreal. Now we know our Metal Titanic is about to hit the grunge iceberg, so let's rock on as the ship goes down. Check this out. Right. Well, Ryan, welcome back to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How you doing, dude? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. I was super excited when you invited me. Yeah, man, I, I know this is a big year. You really like 1991. Uh, I kind of wasn't sure, and then when I went back, and I was like, wow, uh, what a great year for uh, hard rock and heavy metal. Oh, my God, yeah. it was. When you asked me about 91, I was like, okay, here we are. This is my wheelhouse. <laughs> and uh, when, when I started digging deep, man, I was like, I, I had actual stress. It was so pathetic. I was like, <laughs> I can't leave. I can't, I can't leave South Gang out. They were so killer, and they feel so bad. And I'm like, oh, my God. I, like, it's absolute. Like, I can't listen to this CD ever again if I have it on my list. So, but, I mean, uh, it, was, it was really cool. So, man, there's, like, we do this every, like, for every year, I, I feel like we go, wow, there's so many to choose from. I didn't realize it, but yeah. this year... I think I told you, I was like, I need a top 25. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the misconception of a lot of people, especially if maybe younger kids that, that weren't around during this time frame, you know, they think that in 1991, you know, metal was over, Nirvana came out, and, and that was it. But, you know, what people have to understand is that Nevermind came out in September of 91. So there was a lot of healthy times for heavy metal still in 1991 all prior to that, and you got to think there were a lot of bands in 1990 that were out on the road, and their tours went into 91. Big tours like Poison's Flesh and Blood, Warren's Cherry Pie, Firehouse was out opening for Warren. So there was a lot of big things still happening for you know glam metal at this point. Oh, absolutely, I totally agree. Um, I didn't want to open with the negativity. I just you know and get into how much I dislike grunge. <laughs> but it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't just a phase. You know, like. I really, really didn't like it when it came out. Like I had to live it because I was I was in middle school. So finally, we got to talk about something that I actually experienced, you know. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I really didn't like it then, and I really still don't like it. I figured, man, maybe it'll it'll wear on me, and I'll, I'll enjoy some of it. But I don't know, man. It's just it's just not my cup of tea at all. Yeah. I I know there's some really good musicians, and about as close as I get would be Alice in Chains, but sure. they're about like more hard rock to me. So. Yeah. But I mean, I remember like like recently I listened to a Mark Slaughter interview, and he actually said something in reference to this. He talked about how MTV kind of changed their management at that point, and they said, "You know what? I'm over the hair stuff. Yeah. We're going to switch it all up." And they kind of they kind of switched gears, and it really altered a lot of the youth and in terms of what they thought was suddenly cool and not. Yep. And uh, you know, you got you got guys like Nikki Six talking about the oversaturation of all the bands that wanted to be like them. Yep. And to be honest, it, to me, it wasn't oversaturation because a lot of these bands had more talent in their little finger than a lot of the highly established '80s bands, if you will. Yeah. So to me, it wasn't oversaturation. It was just kind of like a respect for that genre and like i said before it's kind of a never-ending genre like i like i said i still <laughs> find stuff daily that's brand new to me and it's and it's ripping so yeah yeah i like this year and i like the next year and even in the 93 a little bit it kind of kept going it did fairly well for those of us that want to dig deep but 
Yeah, I'm really excited. It's a, it's a cool list and a cool year. I really can't wait to hear what you got. And, you know, the thing is, too, before we jump in, I think a lot of bands, you know, just kind of what you just said, you know, the tides were changing, and a lot of bands didn't even realize they were making the wrong album. You know what I mean? They thought, like, oh, this is going to last forever. And, you know, a lot of these guys were, were making, like, a glam metal album, and they really didn't know what kind of juggernauts were, were heading out in, in 1991. And I'm not just talking about Nirvana, Nevermind. Think about the Black Album by Metallica. I mean, that's a game changer in itself. So if you were playing, like, you know, doing the power ballad thing and, and, and the girls, girls, girls type of thing... You know that that was going away like real fast. The rug was being pulled, and they didn't even know it. Yep, absolutely. I totally agree. Well, without further ado, man, let's jump right into this bad boy, this epic <laughs> year. I want to hear what yeah. you got for number ten. All right. Well, here it goes. Uh, number ten, I chose a Canadian band called Harem Scarum. Okay. And yep. you remember them? Yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah. Yeah, so Harem Scam is their self-titled. They were around for a few years prior, but didn't release anything on a major label. And they got a guy named Harry Hess as their lead vocalist, and he's one of those guys that has that range where he can go full baritone, super deep voice, but he can just hit those high notes. He's got this fantastic, talented, wide-range voice. Great first two studio albums. Um, their style's really varied after that. They, they kind of tried other things and, and they were really talented they were like uh you know like we talk about how Lillian Axe was a little ahead of their time yeah. like different than the rest of the genre they were similar where they had a lot of uh proving to do I think and um there's an album called The Early Years that has um a lot of their stuff they did in the in the late 80s but uh this first album is really cool and they have a the rare drummer that can kick ass vocally. Mm. And I, you may have heard about him. Um, that guy went on to sing for Red Dragon Cartel, which was that Jake E. Lee band oh, okay. in the last cool. five years or so. Right. Yeah. So, so, and he also has a song, um, I believe it's on the next album that where he sings lead. But, um, you know, just to kind of check out Harem Scarum, really, really cool uh, couple songs. They have a song called love reaction and it has this, a typical huge chorus it's really um quite the catchy song hard to love is like they kick that one off distant memory and with a little love um like i said the first two albums are epic really really talented people and they're still at it so nice. I, I really enjoy their music you know i've heard of the band but i've never heard the album but now i'm definitely inspired to check that out yeah, I think I kicked off 86 with a Canadian band, and this, that wasn't planned. <laughs> so, <laughs> here we are in uh, 91, another Canadian band. Interesting. Uh, I think they got they, they had a fair amount of success in Canada in one of those big in Japan type bands. <laughs> well, I'll do my 10, and probably a lot of people will be surprised that I placed this as low as I did. But this is a band I've just got mixed feelings on. I've never been super, super into them, but I can't deny... Um, what they did on this Time album. Time some live tunes. It says Skid Row performing Monkey Business. And it's Skid Row, uh, Slave to the Grind. I've just always been kind of on the, on the fence about Skid Row. Like if it was Warrant against Skid Row, I'd take Warrant for some reason. I just like that sound better than the Skid Row sound. But 
this album, man, just kicks all kinds of ass. And it was really super ballsy to do an album this heavy because this was a really big departure from their last one. Um, I mean, what can I say? Monkey Business and Slave to the Grind are just amazing killer singles. Uh, I've always loved Creep Show. I don't know why. <laughs> and I like Riot Act and Living uh-huh. on a Chain Gang. But, you know... Like I said, they took it took a lot of guts to, to make an album that heavy for a band like them, especially being known for some of the ballad stuff, like I Remember You and all that. You know, and even on that album, they, they were doing gigs with Pantera and stuff. So so Skid Row were finding a way to survive in this new uh, new decade. And let's face it, man, three million albums don't lie. That's what they sold in the U.S. So this was a big one. Uh, so Skid Row is one of those rare bands that were able to really still kind of, you know, make a mark in 91. What you said about choosing between Warrant and Skid Row, I couldn't agree more. I I left Skid Row off my list. Um, wow, I'm kind of shocked. I'm surprised. To, to, yeah. I know, I know. I was kind of shocked myself, but to me, they they tried so hard to go so much harder and kind of almost like talk shit about what they listened to pre-show. Like mm. they used to do ACDC and they switched to Pantera because they're so badass. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, you're, you're trying a little too hard sure. there, buddy. Yeah. And and although, trust me, I had and have my moments where I still crank both albums, I'll always gravitate towards something like Can't Stand the Heartache over yeah. the threat off of Slave to the Grind. But... That's just me. That's just, you know, I like the poppy stuff. So, right. Um, but I, yeah, like I, I left him off and I was kind of running over my list with one of my buddies who's into this and, and he's like, well, don't forget about Skid Row. And I said, no, I am. It's intentional. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what, man? You've got you to gotta sometimes wonder because when you look at like 91 and you look at 92, you know, a lot of these bands were, were upgrading and, and getting a little bit heavier. And, you know, as much as you'd love to think that this is their own grand idea to do this, or this is what they're feeling in their heart, you know, you don't, you don't know if some label guy was saying, man, we're getting vibes that, you know, like this is what's the next thing you got to, for your next album, you got to crank this up a little bit. So, so I almost wonder that about a lot of the albums where the bands did a big departure. Was it all like what they wanted to do or was it somebody at a label was kind of giving them a little nudge who knows right yeah i never thought about that That, that's probably a pretty solid idea that that's probably what went down (laughs) so number nine number nine my boy kane roberts yeah kane nice kane you, you spoke to him right I did. Yeah, he was really cool to talk yeah. to. Yeah, he was awesome. Yeah, I, I, I liked that one. Um, so so Saints and Sinners, Kane Roberts, he came out with the album in 87 and 91. The 87 was where he's on the cover with the machine gun guitar, like Rambo, looking killer. Mm-hmm. Um, but in his, his 91 album, Saints and Sinners, it's, I was reading down a list, and I'm going, oh, my God, every – Every song I read, I know the album so well that I was singing the chorus in my head going, okay, that's good. That, that's a hit. Shoot, that's a good one. I can't talk about them all, but it's just so catchy. He had um, Desmond Child produced it, yep. co-wrote every song. He had the, the Bon Jovi and Sambora ballad yep. on there. I think, I think Cher did it. Uh, yeah, he had the Cher it, one, yeah. Kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, this is one of those albums that, that just just is layered and laced with catchiness. Every chorus is big 
and he, he it looks like you know he sounds like he spent a lot of time writing this album yep. probably a couple of years i'd imagine and you know i also super impressed with a person that lives their life like he does you know he super talented musician and singer and he takes really good care of himself yeah and it's just it's just one of the you know one of the testaments to that kind of discipline and i've always been into bodybuilding and working out and so when i saw this combination i was like huh mm-hmm. he's got the he's got the ripping he's got the muscle oh my god this guy you know, like, <laughs> suddenly i have this, this, this man crush <laughs> but uh, here i am so but needless to say some of the songs you always want it just ripping chorus too far gone is like it's not a mid-tempo but it's a little slower with a really big chorus fighter rebel heart and of course wild nights i think twisted was the first single and wild mm-hmm. nights maybe it was next but this is one of those albums that really should have been a lot bigger yeah it probably goes back to a timing thing and i think that's going to come up a couple times during this on my end it's a timing thing if this could have came out maybe even a year earlier could be a totally different outcome now i gotta make a confession i think this is going to come up i might as well just say it now little mike in 1991 i wouldn't say i was going down the grunge path but i was definitely kind of straying away from some of this stuff i'm going to be honest this was an yeah, album. I remember you talking about that. You were starting to get a little harder. Yeah, like I think I, uh, you know, I played in a couple bands during this era that were a little bit heavier, and we were getting more into like Sabotage and Man of War and Megadeth and Metallica. I, I was going down more of the thrash wormhole at this point. If anybody I was really into uh, was doing a follow up album, I was there. But for all the bands that put out their debuts, bands like Wildside and Roxy Blue and all those guys, I don't even know, like I said, since I don't know much about any of them, I don't know if those came out in 91 or 90, I have no idea. But I was starting to yeah. back away a little bit. So that's why when a lot of people, even on Twitter and, and, and all the different social media, when people go crazy about some of these albums, I missed them. And, and sometimes, as you probably can relate, it if you've missed it, sometimes it's hard to kind of get the vibe like 20, 30 years later. You know what I mean? So sometimes you can and sometimes yeah, you can't. I get that. So, so that's, I'm just, that's my disclaimer. Um, I love Kane Roberts. I loved him in Alice Cooper. I, I love the, the John Rambo thing because I love Stallone and I love heavy metal. So it was a perfect pairing. I love all that. So this one just escaped me. I, I just never picked it up when it came out. But when I went back, the only, my only complaint is that it's kind of it's kind of cookie cutterish like compare I compare it to the same kind of stuff that Alice Cooper was doing in the late 80s and 90s uh-huh. and it's that Desmond Child stuff the, all the choruses kind of sound the same to me like they're they're wicked catchy they're very melodic yeah. but they're all kind of interchangeable you know what I mean so like when you think of bed of nails prime example I think I think Kane Roberts helped write bed of nails even though he, he didn't play on the trash album a lot of that stuff yeah, you're on right. On the the Kane Roberts Saints and Sinners sounds like that, you know what I mean. So so it's cool stuff, yeah. but it, it it to me it just feels a little bit repetitive. Like it all kind of sounds the same to me. And I've I've got problems with um, Alice Cooper stuff from from this era too. I, I don't I'm not wicked into it. Although maybe one of his '91 albums will be on my list. But um, you know <laughs> I, I do have problems with some of that stuff just because it just seems like. Uh, Ryan, you know what I'm saying? Like anybody could do it. Like when Rat did some of it on Detonator, and 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 you know, Kane Roberts does it, and Alice Cooper does it. Like then it kind of takes away. Like what's where's the real character of the artist? You know what I mean? We've lost it, and now they're just mm-hmm. performing these Desmond Child pop rock songs. Uh, that's that's my take on it, man. 
I wonder if there's a child that was directly his influence. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I, I feel it has like to be. It, is. it has to be because it all. It, that's the one similar component, really, with all of it. It all kind of sounds very similar. So now I feel like a big dipshit. With my <laughs> <life in> 1991. <laughs> <laughs> no way, man! You can you like what you like, and I I did go back and listen to that before the interview, and I thought it was cool, but that was just the only thing that was coming to mind that it all kind of seemed interchangeable with like you know the Alice no, Cooper and the Dead and stuff. I absolutely get it. Um. Well, I'm gonna let my heavy roots shine. I'm going overkill horoscope for my number nine. I, I love overkill, man. Overkill is so interesting. You know, uh, Bobby's voice is is so cool. It's so high. You know what I mean? Uh, and it's so whiny. And it's kind of different than what you would expect for like thrash metal. He could definitely, you know, what his voice sounds almost spitting image you know almost like identically like a henrik from um dirty looks they sound so much alike but anyways um this was the era when i was getting big into thrash and i thought horoscope was a big upgrade from the years of decay and it was produced by terry date which he's done a lot of like heavy albums and i love the title track horoscope that's kind of like a slow heavy uh blood money it's just good stuff man thanks for nothing that's another one on there but uh yeah, I love that album. Um, they were in the zone at this point. Like I said, late '80s, early '90s. I really liked what Overkill was doing, and and that's where that's why like when I missed Wildside and Roxy Blue, it's because I was jamming on. You know, I was getting into like Pantera and Overkill and and listening to what Anthrax was doing at the time. So that's kind of where I was was at at this era. You know what? I bought uh, Under the Influence and The Years of Decay, mm-hmm. thinking that they had sold out a little bit and went a little bit hair <laughs> hair bandy uh-huh. and I kind of picked up on his voice being like okay he could pull it off if he wasn't backed by such a hard band. he could yeah he but, definitely could pull on like a sleaze I mean? model like, yep yep yeah I, and I think I saw was he on do you remember that metal show with Eddie Trunk yeah I think he was on that and and I don't know if he spoke too kindly of the late 80s albums because i think he even thought that they sold out which of course like to me they didn't no, but like i, I you know I, I can't speak to this album very much because i just it was scary to me man it was too much for me <laughs> <laughs> yeah i totally understand but but i do but i do own some of their stuff and sweet and if if i'm really feeling in the mood sometimes i'll i'll turn that kind of stuff on <laughs> so what do you got for number eight number eight i have shadow king Oh, oh my God! I forgot about this album. Well, I'm glad you you, you put it on there because oh. I love this album. How could you? No, um, Shadow King self-titled. Yeah, so Lou Graham, obviously Foreigner, Vivian Campbell, and Bruce Turgan was the mm, bass player. Bass player, so, yep. Yeah. So, like Kane Roberts, every song is a catchy yeah. ripper. Just and the ballad, the ballad included. Yeah, they were short-lived. It was right between River Dogs and Def Leppard for Vivian Campbell. And then right in between uh, Foreigner being reunited in, nine, in their 94 album. But Foreigner also put out that 91 album with Johnny Edwards, who was the singer on King Cobra 3. Yep. And that's a good album, like that King Cobra. I really like that. And uh, But in that, that Foreigner album is pretty killer, too. But um, some of the hits are some of the standouts, I should say. Hey, there were no hits. <laughs> There were no hits on this album. What's that? There were no hits on this album. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, yeah, hits. Yeah, right. 
what would it take mm. anytime, anywhere? Don't even know I'm alive. And then you and I had talked about danger in the dance of love. Oh, I before. love that song. Love it. Yeah. Then this this heart of stone. And then that bass player Bruce Turgan. He he released a really good album, and I don't know if it was in the early '90s or it says it was released in '05, which I kind of doubt, but. He's got a really cool voice, if anybody wants to check that out. It's called Outside Looking In. And he's got this really cool cross between Mark Free from Unruly Child. And uh, he has, don't kill me, but a little bit of Halford in him a little, huh. sometimes. So Interesting. he has this really cool combination. But Shadow King's one of those bands where Foreigner was always, I like them a lot, but they are they get bubblegum quick. Mm-hmm. But yep. Shadow King stayed hard the whole time. And even on their mid-tempos and some of their ballads, was harder than things that Foreigner did, yeah. which again, Foreigner's an all-time classic, and I, I see the roots, and I see Lou Graham's voice being like almost untouchable. But Ooh. hopefully, uh, someone out there didn't hear about Shadow King, and now they check it out. But it's one of those where they go, "Oh my God, this is this is gold. This, yeah. this should have been huge, <laughs> like like the rest of them." Honestly, if I would have remembered that this album came out in '91, I would it would have booted off "Slave to the Grind" 100. percent This would have been my number ten for sure. But I'm glad that you you put it on there. Funny, every song you mentioned, those were the ones that I would mention. Um, and the strange right. things about this album, and once okay, so two things. I did not buy this when it came out. This was probably, like I said, heavy thrash metal Mike at that point would have been like, what, what, what is yeah. this crap? I can't buy this. But I bought this, or I got, I don't know, I think I got it on tape because I had a car with a tape deck or something maybe about 10 years ago. Yeah. And I loved it. I was like, how did I not know about this album or why didn't I get this album? And the biggest <laughs> failure uh, is the band in Atlantic Records because the song they released was I Want You, I think, and it was terrible. That was the, one of the worst oh, songs. Oh, really? I don't like that song. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, that, that was their video. And I'm thinking, like, how did you not release Anytime or, or uh, Danger in the Dance of Love? Those songs were so good. So they made a big fail with what they released as a single, and it probably hurt the album. And the album probably had no chance anyways in 91, but, it, but I love it. It's a great – and I love Lou Graham. And last thing I'll say is – you're right, Bruce, uh, the bass player, went with Lou Graham back to Foreigner, and Mr. Moonlight is a really great album. So if anybody wants to hear these guys uh, in Foreigner together, uh, they made a killer album, uh, Mr. Moonlight. That is a good album, and this this bass player kind of became his secret weapon. I think he supplied some pretty good backup vocals. Okay, my number eight. And strangely enough, I was just talking trash talking trash, no pun intended, about the whole Desmond Child stuff. And my number eight is Alice Cooper, hey, stupid. Because I love Uh Alice Cooper, man. He's one of my favorite artists of all time. And it's not his greatest. um, But I do think it's better than trash. I got a real problem with trash. I don't know why. I just think it's Alice Cooper... They put Alice Cooper in the glam metal mode, and he's so much more than that to me. He's he's a great songwriter. He's a, he's sarcastic at times and funny. He's uh, very odd. He's very eclectic, and and I think that's just stripped away the soul of Alice Cooper when they put him into the whole trash thing. Now. It, he survived, and bands need to artists need to change to survive. I get it. So all the moves that he made in the '80s were the right moves to, to stay alive. But um, you know, looking back, I don't think anyone's going to say that 
you know, trash is better than billion dollar babies or, or, or walk into my nightmare. You know, it's never going to happen. But um, I do love the ballad on this one. Loves a loaded gun. I think that's one of his coolest mm-hmm. ballads. Snake Bite is very cool. Little heavier uh, glam song by him. Of course, Feed My Frankenstein. But yeah, man, I, I got to put it at eight. And one of the biggest things that I can take away from this album is that I saw Alice on this tour. I saw him on Operation Rock and Roll, which also included Judas Priest and Motorhead. So it was a really cool gig, and the show just blew me oh, away, yeah. man. He, he he did so many cool effects and everything. You know, there was a girl on the stage taking pictures of him. I, I really believe, just because I was a young man in 91 myself, I thought that was a, somebody from the press. But he grabs her, and he throws her on the table, and she gets electrocuted, <laughs> and she turns into a zombie. You know what I mean? It was, it was such a cool show, man. And, and so... That whole v- cool. album just has a good vibe. Is it his greatest? No, but it's pretty cool. So I own it online. Is Love the Loaded Gun the number two song on the album? I can't remember. I think it is. Odd to have a- okay. Yeah. Is I think it think that was weird too, like the ballad being number two? Like usually it's four or something, you know? Yeah, but it, you know what? It, it, the reason I liked it is because at that point, I was one of those music, well, still am, obviously one of those you know completist type music geeks. So probably by 91, I had the majority of his old albums from the, the 70s yeah. and stuff. And that song really did kind of remind me of like the old Alice, like, you know, the, the crooner Alice, You and Me and Only Women Bleed. I think the verses really had that vibe, but then of course, of course, the chorus had a Desmond Child vibe. <laughs> you know what I mean? But but, uh, but it was oh, yeah. it was yeah. really cool. I thought Alice was kind of getting back. He was working his way back from being a total you know uh, '80s glam guy for for trash. I think he was working his old style back. But it was it was going to be a slow path to get back there. So I think I've told you my fire captain. His brother is Steph Burns. Yes, uh, and his. He, my the, the the guy I know, Josh, he's retired now. He's a super good guy, also a really good musician. So his brother was in Wayne's World. He's got cool stories about nice. the set of Wayne's World and um, working with Alice and uh, went on to Y&T and super down to earth. Or sorry, I think he, left, he first was in Y&T, then went to Alice. Was, yeah, that's how it went. But uh, really cool story, really cool guy. I met him once at uh, when he started playing for Huey Lewis. Really nice guy. It was super down to earth. Really cool to see him in that band at the time. Very talented guitar player. So it's really cool to kind of, because I got into this album just because of that. Yeah. Because I had that, that personal connection and it, it made it super cool. And I also really like Y&T 10 because he was on that album too. Yeah. Um, so really, really cool album. I agree. Really cool connection. But like I said, just being a music dork, I always thought, oh, weird, number two ballad. But yeah, it's been done, it but it's rare. Because <laughs> we all know the ballad is supposed to be three, not two. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Yeah, how could they? Oh, what's your seven, man? What's your seven? Number seven. I got your boys from Danger Danger. Screw it. Nice. Love this album. Um, I think I like it more than their first. Wow. I love Bang okay. Bang. And I, I love living it up, and I love Bang Bang, but the rest of it has that kind of that like galloping piano keyboard on, on the first album a lot. That yeah. I don't love it love as much. Yeah. And this one's a little bit more uh, melodic rock. You got songs like Beat the Bullet, Don't Blame It on Love, 
slipped her the big one. Horny son of a bitch. You can't, <laughs> can't forget about that one. But uh, So when you talk to him, obviously I listened to the interview. Yeah. And I had read once upon a time, as a California guy, I had read once upon a time that Danger Danger played a outdoor concert on the beach in Malibu. And I don't know if that was from their first album. It probably was, but maybe this album. But it always sounded like just the most killer outdoor beach. Right. Malibu Beach is, is like the typical perfect California dream beach setting. And I always think of that, and this album kind of epitomizes that. It's just that loose, obviously laced with nothing but sexual innuendos uh-huh. and hooks and hooks and perfect era for them and big in Japan like Harem Scarum. Yeah. And they didn't really they didn't really mind the fact that almost every song was an innuendo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which apparently. Is, which is, you know, at, at, at that point, it was like the antithesis of what people were looking for when it comes to what became very popular right. in these next few years. Yep. But obviously, to me, it works really well. Uh, but yeah, this is, I think this is my number one. Although, We've talked about cockroach before. Yeah, and that's cool. We tried to talk about <laughs> tried to talk about <laughs> this album and cockroach with him, but uh, yeah, he didn't really care to talk much about this one or the next one. But yeah, yeah. Uh, this this era for them was uh, I think they matured a little bit from the first album, and and this this one really kicks ass. So. Oh man, I, there's so much to say here. I'm gonna to try to condense it down as, as fast as I can. Yeah, he he. When I had Ted on, he didn't really want to talk much about this album, and I'm gonna be compl- completely honest. I don't know how much I could have added to this album because I didn't buy it when it came out, and I'm not very familiar mm-hmm. with, with hardly any of the songs. Because once again, I just did not. I just wasn't. I just was done. I did. I didn't want it. I didn't want this album at the time. And I think it's an example of they were making the wrong album. They didn't know it. You know what I mean? They didn't know that the rug was getting pulled out from under them. And they went so far yeah. in that, you know, sexual innuendo and and happy go lucky songs. And everything was kind of getting darker. So I give them credit. They did what they wanted. They did what they felt is right. I think a little bit. I'm just going to be honest, and no disrespect to them, because I do. I do think they got a lot of great songs and a lot of talent. Some of it's a little hokey for me, man. Especially like Monkey Business. Ain't no business like Monkey Business. Sounds like a commercial to me. Like some of the stuff sounds like it could, like we're selling we're selling uh, bananas or candy or something. I don't know what the hell we're doing. Son of a bitch, really? <laughs> so some of it just sounds kind of like cartoonish. You know what I mean? So. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I went back when I went back to listen to it. I was like, I just maybe I just I had to be there in the zone for it, and I missed it, and, and now I don't get it. So I just I, I can't I can't relate to it at this point. Oh, I fell for it hard. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I like goofy and cheesy stuff too. Just for some reason, I, I just missed it. There's a theme here. I like the candy stuff. I like. I do too, man. Cartoons, but I, but once again, <laughs> you have to catch it at the right time. So like that's why I love all that glammy and poppy stuff, like on the Tiger Tales albums, because like I was a young kid and it was very impressionable to me at that time. But like I said, this one, if if I heard this album in '87, I probably would have been all over it. But like I said, trying to listen to it now as an adult, I was just like, I, I can't, man. I just, I, I, I'm not feeling it. I'm sorry. Um, so my number seven, my number seven, uh, I think a lot of people will understand why this is on there. So 
L.A. Guns, Hollywood Vampires, man. Ah, yeah. And, um, you know, Over the Edge is such an epic tune. Kiss My Love Goodbye was like the, the lead-off single. So cool. I always liked Some Lie for Love. Yeah. Thought that was pretty decent. And, you know, they had a minor hit with It's Over Now. And I remember at the time... Uh, I don't think it's it's over now. Kind of really came out to like '92, so the album had done a few singles that hadn't done much, and then that came out, and they had a minor hit. And if if people if if you remember it, great. If you don't, go on YouTube and check it out. They actually played Spring Break and uh, MTV, so it was kind of weird. LA Guns were somehow hanging on by like the thinnest thread at that point. Had a minor hit, and we're playing Spring Break MTV being aired on MTV, so. Somehow they were they weaseled their way uh, you know under the radar, staying alive as a glam metal band in the '90s. But one thing I'll, I'll say about this album, and I want to say there might be another album somewhere on this list. Maybe not. I'm I'm, I'm talking about so much metal lately. I, I don't even know who, who I said what to. But <laughs> but I feel like and see if you can relate with me on this one. Is I think L.A. Guns scaled back like the distortion and stuff a little bit on this one. So like oh, when yeah. I think of. Um, Heartbreak Station was like a scaled back sound, and I, I feel like this is the same way. I, I think we were not as overproduced and a little bit of a scaled back tone. So I wonder if like producers and bands were kind of getting a vibe that things were changing and, and you know things are, are a little bit different. So I do feel like you know this doesn't feel as distorted and as overproduced as um, Cocked and Loaded, but I mean, that could just be me. Oh, last thing, the album came with 3D glasses. And you could look at the cover. The cover opened out to like a big poster, and you could look at it with your three D glasses. But you know, it, it's not like the oh, kind nice. of not the kind of cool three D you see at the movie theaters and at like Disneyland and all that kind of stuff. But but it was it was interesting. Well, now I understand why the cover was a little funky with the red and yes. white like three uh, D. So right. <laughs> see, but, but speaking to the the toned down stuff, like. Had grunge not come along, I think hard rock should have and did go the direction of the Wild Sides and Saints and Sinners mm-hmm. and Unruly Child and Heavy Bones right. of 92 and that whole super, super hard and, and Dog Eat Dog Warrant, like yeah. that kind of stuff. So that's where I think it it should have gone and, and would have gone. Yeah. And it, it did to, to them. And it's just like these bands like Danger Danger coming out with a 91 album that was pretty much as the 80s as it gets yeah. because they made it within the 80s uh, thought process. Yep. Whereas a band like Hardline, Wildside, etc., Saints and Sinners, they came out with this 91, okay, we're going to make this 91, maybe 92. We're still rippers. We're still going to use the technology of today and make it big drum sound and mm-hmm. super killer. But was a band like L.A. Guns, they were always kind of on the cusp of being dark and yeah. heavier and different, you they know? It, it, so, like, like the the spring break thing, I wonder, I'll have to go look, but I, why do I have a feeling they didn't play a song like Never Enough when no. they were there? No. They probably went with, like, something something hard off the first album yeah. and Kiss My Love Goodbye and It's Over Now off this yeah. album. And yeah. all of a sudden it was like, oh, they're cool. Yeah, they, they, they kind of look like everyone else. They're cool. They're they're wearing black. I think they but had flannels. I think they had a flannel on. I think there was a flannel, a vest. <laughs> I'm Phil yeah, Lewis. I could be yeah. wrong. <laughs> What's your number six? Well, you know, <laughs> if the flannel was open, it's a different story. <laughs> but uh, number six, I I wonder if this will be on yours. I think it might be, but Europe. <laughs> 
Prisoners of Paradise. Hmm, I wonder. Hmm, maybe. Maybe. But this this one, this will be my favorite of the Europe catalog. Yeah. Um, I, I I think that, again, if this, if this album, and we had talked about this with uh, the drummer, yep. um, not we, you, no. uh, it, that that this release date was pushed back. So yes. had this, this is a, it, it's a lot like, it's the same story as like Crocus. When yeah. Crocus um, came out with their um, 88 album, uh, Heart Attack, it's kind of the same story. Had this been released earlier, it would have been much bigger. Yep. Crocus Heart Attack in 88, if it were released in 86 or 87, that would have probably carried on the success of their Headhunter Blitz stuff. This too, this this could have carried on right where um, Out of This World left off. You know, they could have stayed out on tour longer with Out of This World. They had a Def Leppard gig, and that would have been huge for them. Um, but they they really capitalized on what they had with the final countdown and, and Out of This World. Um, but this one had those those layered hooks like Talk to Me, Little Bit of yep. Lovin', Halfway to Heaven. But then you got album tracks like. Bad Blood, Mind yep. in the Gutter, Girl from Lebanon. Like these mm-hmm. are all very quality, good hard rock songs. They got that element of pop. You can't get away with that with Joey Tempest, but with Key and Joey, like oh. that. This album is like the epitome of of Europe for me. I, yep. This is by far my favorite Europe album. Yep. I am going to say nothing about this album right now. Nothing. Okay. Nothing okay. I say. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot to say about it, but I'll, I'll hold off. All right. So. All right. Number six. I got to do a shout out to my buddy on Twitter, AFish. He's a big Badlands fan. Anytime Badlands comes up, he's always shouting about Badlands. So. So, Badlands Voodoo Highway, uh, what a great album, man. And I think at times, this sounds like it could have been made in the 70s. So, go back to what we just said about uh, LA, LA Guns. Badlands was had the same kind of philosophy. Let's just go really raw. Let's make it sound like it's a vintage album. Let's not have a shitload of guitars and a shitload of effects. Let's, let's just play raw. And you know what? These guys are so freaking good that they don't need a lot of that shit, overdubs and stuff. They're just that dang good. Um, and one of the albums, that, uh, songs, not albums, one of the songs that sounds very 70s-ish is Three Day Funk. I love that. But there's a lot of like you know stuff that could have flown in the 80s, like The Last Time. Uh, stuff like that. Um, I love the cover of Fire and Rain. And when I talked to Greg Chase on, uh, I guess James Taylor told those guys not to do it. They didn't really get the the full blessing, but they did it anyways. And uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy that surrounds Badlands. I'm not going to get into all that stuff. And you know, you don't find their albums yeah. on Spotify. There's a lot of rumors as to why that is. I don't know if it's true. It, no matter what, it sounds like they were had some rough. Uh, times with their management, like with Paul O'Neill, and some rough times with uh, with uh, Atlantic Records. But um, mm. but, but this band is so solid, and you know between um, Jakey Lee, the riffs, the guitar solos, Ray Gillen, amazing voice, Greg Chason, an excellent bass player, and I think Jeff Martin, man, does a great job. He was the vocalist in Racer X, and he's the drummer here in Badlands. I think it sounds great. It totally fits. It's not the same as Eric Singer. Eric Singer gave it more of a Zeppelinish vibe, I think, on that debut. But this is still really cool, man. There's like really heavy 
blues songs, like heavy metal blues, like Soul Stealer and Shine On. And one interesting thing that really stands out, I'll never forget it. We used to watch, I know everybody's probably going to boo at me, but I did used to watch American Idol like way back in the day, like when it was, like when they'd have a cool rocker on there and, you know, all these yeah. different people like Chris Daughtry. And, and I, it makes me think about Bo Bice. And Bo Bice did an acapella version of In a Dream off this album and i'll never forget it man because of course i know this album you know and 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 brian seacrest is like here's here's bo boyce doing badlands in a dream and i'm sure every probably 99 percent of the audience watching and in the crowd would be like who the hell's freaking badlands what the hell is this but um it was cool i can't believe that that went down i I didn't know that yeah that was really cool and uh this album is just freaking spot on man great musicianship too bad Ray Gillen passed away and he couldn't have continued, but what a friggin' album, man. I love it. So I have it. I didn't, I've never really mastered it. And I always wondered if it was just a common name that Jeff Martin was playing drums. Cause obviously I love Racer X. Right. I remember I, you liked I knew he was a drummer, but, but I didn't know that he was a drummer on this album. So mm-hmm. that's, that's some good trivia. I didn't know about. Yeah, man. Some facts, factoids. Nice. I love that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I learn something every day. Um, so, I'm going to have to really dig a little bit deeper on this album. I like the first album a lot. Um, The guitar playing has always been wildly killer. So was was the singer, was he tapped to be in um, Black Sabbath at any point, or am I making that up? No, you're right. He was in Black Sabbath. What happened was is he, um, I'm not a big Sabbath guy, but there was Glenn Hughes um, sang on an album with... um, for Black Sabbath, and then he was out, and then for that album, I think it's Seven Star, maybe I don't know. I'm sure there's metal geeks yeah. that are listening to this right now, and they're just saying, "How do you dorks not know this?" But anyways, um, yeah. And then Gil- Gillen joined and did that tour, and then Gillen d- did the vocals for Eternal Idol. But then I don't know what happened. He was out, and then uh, Tony Martin re-recorded all of them, and he really kind of copped what um, Ray Gillen did. And if you, Ryan get a chance, listen to the demos of Eternal Idol um, with Ray Gillen on them. Because the crazy thing mm-hmm. is, is you think like if you're just familiar with Badlands, which I really was, I didn't know anything about the Sabbath th- Sabbath thing either. You always think of him as a real bluesy singer, and the Sabbath stuff's a little bit more metal. Even though Sabbath is blues metal, you know, there's there's some blues there, but but it's a little bit more metallic, mm-hmm. straight up metallic than Badlands is. And it, he sounds great, man. He almost sounds a little bit like Ronnie James Dio on that stuff at times. So it was an influence that he had that I didn't really notice until he sang on the Sabbath stuff, which makes sense, obviously, Sabbath Dio. It all it all goes together. But yeah, check yeah. out, if anybody listening, if you've never checked out those demos, very readily available on YouTube, and they sound killer. And because, I mean, Ray Gillen smokes Tony Martin in my book <laughs> any day, so. Yeah, I mean, just like my um, disdain for Guns N' Roses. <laughs> this ain't, yeah. ain't on my list for 91, baby. No way. No, no, just like, exactly, just like my, it, like, the, how can millions of people love Guns N' Roses and love Ozzy, but I just don't, it doesn't click with me. Right. I only listen to the Dio Sabbath and the album's, in the 80s mm-hmm. like Eternal Idol and I, I really like those albums because they're not Aussie and I feel mm-hmm. bad because I do like the, <laughs> like like you talked about 86 I yeah. do like the 86 80 well the No Rest for the Wicked yeah, 88, yep, yep. but you know Aussie doesn't really click for me so I'll have to check this out 
Oh, it's so good. What's your number five? Nine. Oh, we're getting now. We're getting. It's getting. We're getting to the good stuff now. I I, I got to hear this. What do you got oh, for five? Dude. Uh, dude, this is gonna be a good one. X Y Z hungry. Oh, okay. X Y Z. Nice, nice. Now X Y Z is one of those bands that kind of picked up the steam like a wild side in the Saints and Sinners, yep. where they went like just thick guitar and thick drums, and they were pretty much what kind of was getting laid out as a blueprint for uh, early '90s hard rock. So, to me. The guitar sound is perfect. The only other equally killer guitar tones are Warren and Robin on Invasion mm. and Angus on Fly, of the Wall, Fly mm. on the Wall. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guitar on this album is just thick and perfect. I love the guitar tone. It's edgy. It's ripping the musicianship and the vocals are amazing. And the album artwork is, of course, super killer. Um, <laughs> there's there's two, two songs that stand out. Don't Say No and Feels Good. Those are just perfection. Those are just headbangers. Those, those to me are like, like thrash dudes would bang their head like I would bang my head to these two songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> huh. um, face down in the gutter when the night comes down, off to the sun. And then, uh, so the singer went on to sing for Great White, yep, you know? Terry. And he put out, put out that album. Yeah. And he put out that album. It was a cool album with Great White. I liked it. Um, so I live in Santa Cruz, California, and we have a, the boardwalk here. And um, there are summer concerts, and there's big outdoor summer concerts, and you get YMT and Eddie Money. We had Warrant, uh, Great White, Quiet Riot with James Durbin. So we get some pretty cool. Sweet. They always do like a they always do a retro thing. I saw Starship there. It's pretty killer. And and honestly, they probably draw the biggest crowd they'll get short of a festival. There's probably 10,000 people there because they just lace the uh, upper upper um, uh, sections of the boardwalk and all the rides, and there's tons of room on the sand. So it's a really cool gig for these guys to play at. So I saw a great white at the boardwalk, and um, I went up to the, the singer, and I had all my XYZ stuff because in between shows, they <laughs> sign autographs and take pictures. So I brought all my XYZ albums, and... Uh, they're all CDs. And he goes, oh, man, you got a great collection. I go, yeah. He goes, hey, do you have the new Great White album? I go, oh, totally. He goes, what's your favorite song? And I go, number five? And he goes, okay. And he could tell that I was just completely full of shit. I right. didn't buy the new Great White album. <laughs> I had heard it, but I didn't buy it. Uh-oh. And I tried to lie my way through, and he caught me, and I was like, <laughs> really like XYZ <laughs> can you guys play Maggie for me <laughs> you know, like, anyway so this album's killer love this album um, great singer great vocalist I, I can't say more about this album you know XYZ is one of those head scratchers like I don't understand why I never got into them I, I, don't, I don't have anything against them I think they're a good band and I got into like every band that had a debut I think in 89 but I never got I never bought the XYZ debut and one of my friends had it, and I thought it was decent. And then by forget it, ninety one, I definitely wasn't paying attention what they were doing. But I'm gonna go back, man, and, and check out some of the tunes that you you talked about because I just I got to give these band, these guys a, a chance. Oh, I would. Yeah, it's great. I, I love their first two, Inside Out and Maggie on the first two. There, there's others, of course, but this album I think is better. 
Well, this probably will not be a surprise to many who know my musical taste. So my number five is Britney Fox, Bite Down Hard. Oh boy, yeah. And I think that Tommy Paris was the perfect replacement for Dizzy Dean. It's because he didn't really sound like him exactly, but he but he had a bit of that spirit in him. You know, he could sing high. Um, he was a little bit screechy, but he was maybe a little bit more clear uh, of a singer than Dean. Dean was like just, rah, you know, just like a real nasty screech, you know what I mean? Like like a Brian Johnson. But, oh, yeah. Um, you know, they did a good job. I think they shot away from a lot of that blues stuff that was going on in the, the late 80s. And Dizzy Dean went right off the deep end with all that blue shit with Black Eyed Susan. I never really cared for that project. But uh, I thought this was the better uh, the better album. You know, definitely heavier. Great musicians, of course. I mean, we got all the original guys from Britney Fox plus Tommy. Six Guns Loaded starts off the album. Killer song. There's a cool ballad, man. It's almost It almost sounds a little bit like Forever, kind of. I feel like they've copped a little bit of Forever, but uh, Look My Way reminds me of Forever a little oh, bit. Yeah. Um, Closer to Your Love is super catchy. And uh, Louder was the single, which is a great, great, um, great album. You know, once again, we'll talk about timelines. And, you know, I think this if this could have came out in 89 or 90, an album of this music, it would have been huge. But it was too late. And I got a confession. I must admit, I did not buy this album when it came out. Um, it really wasn't promoted all that much. And I, I think I probably was turned off a little bit that, you know, it was a Britney Fox without Dizzy Dean. But I did pick up the cassette late 90s and started listening to it all the time and just fell in love with it. And I've been listening to it ever since. So didn't get it exactly when it came out, but uh, it found its way uh, into my collection. I actually think in like 99, 98, I was like, I worked at a restaurant and I was a dishwasher and I remember having like a tape deck, boom box, washing dishes. And I would just jam out this album front to back constantly. And I love it. I love it. God, what a perfect segue. <laughs> Number four, Brittany Fox. Yeah! <laughs> nice. So what are your thoughts on it? Dude. Oh, dude. Love it. This is this album. Tommy Paris is. I, I don't want. I like the first two albums, and I know you really liked Boys yep. and Heat. And you actually kind of turned me on to getting more into it. To I be honest, it. and I'm really glad you did because um, I really like the first two albums. I I really like Dizzy Dean, and he's got that again that acquired taste yeah. uh, voice like Brian Johnson and stuff. But um, I like it. I think it's killer. Um, but. I like Tommy Paris better, mm-hmm. and um, I'm not sure if a lot of people know, but the dude's real name is Don Jilson. Yeah, and the his, Jilson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he 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 came out with that album, Jilson. Yep. And it, it, it's the the debut. I think it's their only album, but uh, that's really sick too. That he, is good. He really like he true to form. I don't know what year it came out, but that Jilson album's really really good too. Um, He's just got the perfect hard rock voice. Yep. I wish that he'd been in the band the whole time. I, I know it would be different. I know maybe people wouldn't have liked it as much and him singing Girls School, although when you hear him doing it on their live album, he does a great job. Sounds great. Um, I, I think that I think this album is laced with hard rock greatness. I yep. mean, the choruses are money. I, I have the songs you chose louder, Closer to Your Love, Lonely Too Long, which has got that sick chorus. Yep. But the ballad I chose was Over and Out. Over and out is cool. And yeah. I, I don't, I don't really give too many nods to ballads, but this one I liked a lot. And when they do it on that live album, it's 
it's um, pretty damn true to form. It's uh-huh. it's that live album. I wonder how doctored it is because yeah, they all are doctored. He kicks yeah. ass. He yeah, I mean he kicks ass on that album. So perfect segue. I mean, Britney Fox '91 was was about as good as it gets for me. Nice. Well, this will be another one that people won't be surprised about. Number four, loudness on the prowl, and uh, oh, dude, how did I forget? I don't have that. No, it happens. It happens. <laughs> like, oh man, this is like my shadow king. For this you. is your shadow I king. Can't believe I lost, left this one out. Well, I got you covered. You can you can give your thoughts on it, but uh, you know it's it's a oh. weird it's a weird album. And if you've ever listened to my interview with Mike Vissera, he kind of explains it is that you know they were working on a new album for America. But then the Japan label says, guys, why don't we just, you know, they needed money. Basically, the, their, their label or uh, their management squandered their money. They needed some fast cash. The label's like, why don't you take some of the old 80s uh, loudness stuff that has uh, Japanese vocals and Japanese lyrics and basically rewrite these songs to, to new creations, you know, with Mike Vissera doing it. And that was just going to be a J- oh. Japan-only album while they did that. But then what happened was... You know the the label liked it so much. They were like, "We're just going to put this out with, to the rest of the world, along with these couple new songs that you had actually written." So, um, so if you think on the prowl is a little bit disjointed, that's why it is a little bit disjointed because it has maybe like I don't even not even sure if it's three or four songs that they were writing, you know, for a new album, and then they basically take all these old '80s songs uh, from the original Loudness band and then make new songs out of them. So there's, they're not they're not like Japanese lyrics translated to english mike vasera explained it he basically wrote new songs over top of them some of them if you listen to like some of the old loudness stuff with the japanese lyrics the, the odd thing and this never makes it doesn't make any sense but they did it especially on the song long distance i love long distance it's such a atypical mm-hmm. like 80s glam song but even on um loudness's long distance the verses are in Japanese, but then they sing the chorus in English. So I, I don't, I never understood what that was supposed to represent. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? It's very strange. But um, I've always believed, and people can dispute this, but loudness I've always felt are like the Japanese Van Halen. Man, you got Akira's guitar playing, which is just out of nice. this world. The riffs and the solos, and the rest of the band are solid too. And I don't want to butcher their names, so I'm not going to say their names. But the guys, the other guys in loudness are are killer as well. So. When you listen to it, like the, the newer tracks that were, were really going for like a new album were like Down and Dirty and Playing Games. And they're, they're pretty heavy, you know, glam metal songs. But I got to admit, man, they've really done a nice job with some of the old songs too. In the Mirror, I know you and I have talked about that. They What yes, they've got going on there just slays, you know. And I love Long Distance. It's such, like that's one of your just typical, you know, catchy cheesy 80s tunes but i love it it's right up my alley sleepless nights is another one but i gotta give props to mike facera man because he's a genius he really is he's an underrated singer and he's an underrated songwriter because could you imagine somebody just hands you this basically like an album worth of songs that are all in japanese and now you've got to listen to this and create new creations for him he, he i mean they sound like they always went together these lyrics and this music so he's really good at that and he's done that for other artists too but he i mean I could talk all day about Mike Vissera, but I'm going to stop. And I'll turn it over to you. What do you say? No, he, he, he's the secret weapon. I, I, I dig this album. That In the Mirror is, is 
I, I remember sending that video and you going, dude, how did I never see this before? Right. This is so killer. And Mike Becerra, I mean, he's done a lot. And then when you talked to him, I started looking at his solo stuff. <laughs> and the dude is one talented mofo. I yep. really like his voice, yep. too. He, he, yep. He's killer. Yep. Number three, dude. Nice. What do you got? Number three. Number three. Okay, well, this is going to shock people. I got a band called B.B. Steel. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, <laughs> but there's an album called, called On The Edge. Wow. Uh, dude, this is basically, okay, for fans of Hysteria era, Def Leppard, this is their long-lost outtakes album. Okay. I mean, it couldn't be more Hysteria than Hysteria. Um, and, well, coincidentally, Phil Collin produced this record. Okay. And... uh he he sings some background vocals. I, I think he sings all the background vocals, but it's not listed in the credits. But this is like a, a Mutt Lang style vocal mm-hmm. and guitar dream, this album. Uh, they're an Australian band. Uh, it's similar to Pete Willis from, from Def Leppard uh, formed a band called Roadhouse. Mm. And they, they came out with an album in 91 as well. And... Um, it's similar to that, but Roadhouse was a little bit uh, more like AOR than Hard Rock. Mm-hmm. So it's right there in that group, but I, I'd say BB Steel is on the like love and affection, um, don't shoot shotgun mm. side of Hysteria. It, it's ama- This album is amazing. Like if 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 you played it for someone that's a, like a, a true novice, they'd be like. Oh, I think that's that band that sounds like Pour Some Sugar on Me. You know, like, it's that close. <laughs> yeah. Where you'd be like, okay, so, but for those people that don't know about it, um, Suffer in Silence, huge chorus, Big On Love, Heartbeat Away was their first single, Live It Up, and then a, a slower kind of mid-tempo called Ride On. But mm. um, I know you're not huge into Def Leppard. Nope. I admittedly, like ACDC, am fully committed, obsessed, <laughs> in a normal way, of course, in a totally normal way, oh, sure. with, with Def Leppard, and, uh, um, but it, it's right there, it, it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's, it's basically the, the Hysteria outtakes, but still, like, everything on Hysteria could have been a single. Two Shotgun and Love and Affection were two songs that they could have been and should have been hits on pretty much anyone else's album. Mm-hmm. But they had so many other killer songs in the album that they released those. But th- it, it's right there. This this album is right there. It's it's amazing. Well, man, you definitely pulled one out of the woodwork. I've never, never heard of BB Steel, so <laughs> I, I don't have much to offer to BB Steel. But, so I will move to my number three. Which is White Lion Main Attraction. So. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I love this album, man. I, to, for me, this could possibly be their best album. I mean, I know the debut; it's it's very close, but I think the production is what really sells this one. I mean, technology's really caught up with things, and the production's heavy, killer. And these guys really started to do some more epic, longer tracks, a little bit more depth. You've got um, "Lights and Thunder" and "War Song." I love "Broken Heart," the remake of it. Leave Me Alone is like heavy funky. 
And uh, Love Don't Come Easy was the first single. And it was played on MTV. So this is kind of one of those things, if you want to use it as a reference, you know, they were getting some airplay, you know, the beginning of 91. There, And once again, I don't know the date, but I know this was played on Headbangers Ball and played on MTV a little bit. After this, you know, everybody kind of fell off the commercial cliff at some point, you know, as the year progressed. But I remember them getting a little bit of airplay. And another big notable thing that happened during this album is two band members just were like out. I don't remember if they were, they quit or they got fired. But, you know, Jimmy DeGrasso and um, I think it's T- Tony Cardona or something like that, T-Bone or whatever. He, he played bass for like Lita Ford and Alice Cooper and he ended up in White Lion. Yeah. So, and then the band was done shortly after that anyways, but uh, still a killer album. Oh, I dig it. Broken Heart and Love Don't Come Easy, those two. Yep. They're, uh, they're right there in the wheelhouse of 91. They're a little different than something off a big game or yep. uh, Hungry, but dude, those two songs alone, like that, that album or those two songs put this album right there. I fully respect where you put this album. Sweet, sweet. So what do you got for two? Number two. I got Van Halen for Unlawful. Oh, yeah, I forgot this came out uh, that year. I wouldn't have put it on my list anyways, but but I did forget about this album. (laughs) All right, let's hear what's so good about it. Let's hear it. (laughs) <laughs> I get it. Like, yeah, there's a lot of people out there that aren't real big Van Hagar fans, but I love it. I mean, I think, like I said, the last 1986, I had 5150 as number one. I almost have this as number one. I think Van Halen, like I said before, is mood dependent. You know, whatever you're feeling for, if you're feeling Roth, if you're feeling Sammy, mm-hmm. I really do. It's, it's just right there with Bon Scott and Brian Johnson for me. I'll never decide. I, I love them both. Um, but like I said, almost number one, definitely my favorite Sammy, Sammy era album. Um, it's almost like a comeback because OU812 was so, eh. You know, you got Cabo Wabo, which is probably one of my, it's like my top three, in my top three Sammy era songs, but that album just didn't do it for me. Um, Eddie was really showing off on this album, kind of pulling out some new bag of tricks. Yep. Sammy's vocals were huge. The drums were fat and, uh. Michael Anthony, the secret weapon. You know, yep. he finally shaved his beard, so that was cool. <laughs> but, uh, no, they had a, they had a great tour. They brought out Hardline. Hardline was is Neil Sean's band, and mm-hmm. and they're in like my top five albums of all time with Double Eclipse. But they brought them out. Um, I think they had an Alice in Chains open for them at one point too. But you got sounds like songs like Pound Cake, Run Around, The Dream Is Over, Top of the World. Yep. I really like 316. It's it's a little guitar tribute to uh, Wolfgang Eddie's son. Um, there's one song I can't do. It's a man on a mission. It's that intro. I can't do that intro. It's like this little nursery rhyme weird thing. I just don't dig it. But the rest of the album is is amazing. It, it was almost there at my number one. But this album is is played frequently for me. Nice. Yeah, no secret, I'm, I'm not a huge Sammy Hagar fan inside of Van Halen or, or out. <laughs> but but, uh, mm-hmm. um, but I, I'm going to say that from what I 
have heard and with the singles, I, I like I like what I hear. I, I do like Pound Cake. I like that a lot. It's very heavy. I like the drill. Uh, and Standing on Top of the World, I think all the singles that I'm familiar with are all some of their best with Sammy Hagar. So I respect that you got this on here, and I, I'm no fool. I can tell that those are good songs, um, but I don't know any other song besides the singles on this album. But but I think they were, you're right, they seem like a bit of a comeback, a little heavier maybe than what they were doing on OU812. Yeah, and it's rare that I put all the singles as my top songs because I really like to kind of dig deeper, mm-hmm. as you do, and find those album tracks. But these singles were they, they they stood out, so there was a reason why they were singles, and and I still they still hold up. But there's that MTV Live '91, I think it's on YouTube, of course. But I think that uh, they do, I think they do Pound Cake, and Sammy just nails it, dude. Like yep. this album was tough to sing, just like 5150, but he, he really nailed it. So I, I really like it. So for my number two was, was on your list. Which is Europe, uh, Prisoners in Paradise. And, nice. it, you know, I love this album. So, like you said, I did talk with their drummer, uh, Ian, and I talked with Key Marcello, like, really early in the days of the podcast, and both of them told a couple different stories, some of the same stories. But um, the album, so the first thing you said, you said it too, it was delayed. They handed in an album that maybe wasn't that poppy. And the label was like, whoa, guys, we got to go back to the drawing board. So that delayed the album. Another thing that was a monkey wrench in the album is that Bob Rock was scheduled to produce the album. And we all know what Bob Rock opted to produce instead which was the black album and bob rock was a very smart man for making that decision um yeah because yeah, so. you know times were changing uh bow hill produces it bow hill's awesome but you know from what i can tell i haven't really dug that deep you know to ask them the specific tracks that were had to be added but i believe they're all the ones that you mentioned the first like four or five songs. I think the first four or five songs are the best songs on the album. I think they're some of Europe's best songs in general. I love all those. Mm-hmm. All or Nothing, Talk to Me, Halfway to Heaven, Cry for You. Those are some of my favorite Europe songs. So I'm digging what they're dishing out here. It's real catchy. It's real melodic. It's very much in line with um, you know, a lot of this stuff in, that we've talked about you know, already on the list and the production. Once again, I feel like you know it's Europe is benefiting from that modern day production, but and of course the the single, the main single, which did get some some video play, was "Prisoners in Paradise," which is a cool song. And you were right, man. You already said it. The combination of Marcelo and Tempest is just untouchable. And no disrespect yeah, to John really- Norum, no disrespect to John Norum, he's great too. But I, I something I like those melodic leads. It's almost like Brian May type of stuff, really melodic and catchy. And it's not, it's not a bunch of notes. It's just, it just fits. It's good stuff. Yeah, and was it? I can't remember if it was your interview, but he kind of, they kind of gave him the green light to come back or stay in Europe. But Europe went in a kind of a different direction, and he yeah. said, mm, "Yep, no, yeah, you're right." You know, yeah. So, so I, re- I really, I really like his playing, and that's kind of cool of him to be like, "Nope, as long as if it's not true to form, I'm out." Yeah, you know, and and just like I said before, and I kind of talk shit, and kind of sucks, but like to me, Europe has like kind like to me three albums, but me I know too. other fans love their first two. 
And they are good, but, you know, the, the 86, 88, 90, uh, 91 were just, those are the three standouts. Obviously, they, they sold the most, of course, but they're, they're the most true to form. Yep. But I forgot about Cry For You. That's a really good song. It's real good, man. Real good. Are we ready? Let's hear it, man. Ready for the the number one? Um, I can't wait. I I gotta hear what this is. Oh my god. Okay. I almost want to give you a hint first, but I won't. So, my number one, Steelheart. Ooh, nice. This album. This album. Okay, Steelheart. Self-titled, 91. A couple different album covers, both killer. I first heard Angel Eyes, of course, on a compilation tape years prior. It was one of those Monsters of Rock compilations. And I thought, oh my God, like, this dude's voice, like, this can't be real. This is insane. This sets the bar higher, no pun intended, than ever. Actually, literally higher than ever. I, so I got this tape, the self-titled tape at, at the flea market, which is the old swap eight we have in Santa Cruz. And it just, this, his vocals just changed my mind at the, like what the pinnacle of vocals in this, in this genre were. The powerhouse drums with his guitar and his vocals and strut on stage was just too good. And this was all pre-YouTube, almost pre-internet stuff. Um, I got all their bootleg videos on VHS of their shows in Japan and local uh, or uh, domestic uh, talk shows. And I mean, I, I could go, I was just trying to go all in on Steelheart. Like th- this was one of those albums where I just went, okay, put everything else on hold for a little bit. I'm going full bore on Steelheart. So it was a big game changer. Um, Seeing him behind the the voice of Rockstar was cool to me because mm-hmm. I, I figured that it it, it kind of like um, it, it kind of established that he was a big time rock singer and with that kind of range he should be you know mm-hmm. he, he should have been showcased a little bit more and I think he had a band prior to Steeler called Red Alert that I, I've been waiting for demos or something to be released but never has. Um, but I thought it was it was a good showcase of where you know credit where credit's due. So um, they have two killer albums, and again in my mind they have two albums. They got Tangled and Rains in '92, and this one in '91. And uh, they did some decent touring, had some pretty decent crowds, had some success with Angel Eyes, and of course, how can you deny Desert Hard Rock? You got you got Wild Child from uh, Wasp, you got <laughs> Europe, you got Europe doing Cherokee. Cherokee in the desert, and then you got Angel Eyes in the desert. There's something about that backdrop for these guys that just works. So I've always been a fan of the desert video, Hard Rock, and that album, um, I'm sorry, that song is just, uh, you know, them. It, it epitomizes them, but some other hard rockers are uh, like never before. It's probably my favorite album, or favorite song on the album. Uh, Love Ain't Easy, they kicked it off with Gimme Gimme and a song called Sheila, which is a blues song, but he showcases his um, vocal ability big time on that song. So it ended up being my number one. And and to be honest, I thought it came out in 90 and I was pretty pleased when it came out in 91. And I was like, okay, bye-bye Van Halen. Steelheart's going number one. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, so that's my number one. Well, all right. So this, yeah, that's where I'm kind of confused too because I thought it came out in '90. Uh, everything on Wikipedia is saying it came out in '90. I remember owning it in '90. It says it was released May 10th, 1990, was certified gold in 91. So, uh, what do you want to do here? <laughs> oh, shit. Well, uh, I guess we can put Sal King in there. <laughs> Make Van Halen my number one. God, I feel like a big jackass now. I was just super pumped that it was, and when I did a little research, I was like, oh, killer. My boys in Steelheart, they came out in 91. But, oh, man. Maybe, uh, you know, I, I could be highly, highly offensive to the, to the guys in Steelheart right now saying it was 91. Because in, in my vast hard rock memory, I thought it was 90 until I started reading into it. And I went, okay, I guess it is 91. But, you know what? If I have to shuffle it down, I'll make Van Halen number one. And I'll put Steel or, uh, South Gang at number 10. <laughs> <Just stop everything's> <laughs> <done>. <laughs> we gotta leave we gotta leave all this in there because it is funny um but you know it, the reason the reason why that sticks out is because like i said i didn't buy any debut i don't think in 91 by any of these kind of bands and i definitely had the debut of steelheart i remember having it on cassette mca records and definitely i remember it being 90 and um that's that's why i went so when you first said steelheart i thought maybe it was tangled in the reins because that one i'm not wicked familiar with i thought well maybe that came out in 91 but yeah yeah it looks like looks like the debut came in came in 90 but we're gonna give you a pass because it went gold in 91 so so it's got relevance to uh to 1991 that's what that's what i meant meant. (laughs) And and you know i don't know i i like the album um it definitely didn't stay with me throughout my life. Like I, I listened to it a lot back in '90, but I don't remember listening to it much after that, and I don't listen to it much today. But super talented vocalist and great band. Uh, definitely one I need yeah. to revisit. But all right, man, I'm gonna do my number one, and you know, probably some people are gonna boo and they're gonna say that I took an easy way out. whatever but dude i gotta go with metallica the black album man i have to and i thought so i thought so and it it might not be an album that i listen to all the time but i can't deny like how epic it is and what it accomplished uh in music and in metal and how influential because when you listen to this album and you see when it came out watch what follows in 92 uh overkill changed their sound uh, testament dialed back the sound um uh, same thing with anthrax everybody was trying to get their own black album nobody succeeded except metallica obviously um and metallica you got to give them credit man because they really did take a chance they took a stab at what i would call like pop tra- thrash i want to say pop trash i think that's an album album by duran duran they took a stab at pop thrash you know what i mean it's very yeah. they, they dialed back the jams, right? These are shorter songs. There's not as many changes in riffs. Um, there's harmonies, you know. There's uh, there's a lot of things that maybe Metallica wasn't doing a ton of prior to this. And the sound that Bob Rock added. I mean, this is like Doctor Feelgood on steroids. You know, I mean, this is taking like kind of what he was going sonically for with Doctor Feelgood into a whole other level. And when you listen to the production, it's amazing. The, the vocals just are killer. I love. I've always loved Hatfield's voice, and I love it on this. And 
the drumming is out of this world and the way it sounds. The whole band, Kirk Hammett and, and Jason Newstead, all sound killer. You can actually hear the bass on this album compared to the one before it. Um, the singles are all overplayed. We've all been beat to death with Enter Sandman. But if you could go back to like the first time you heard Enter Sandman, saw the video, I mean, it, it was good, man. It was very influential, very killer. And, you know, Nothing Else Matters. I went back and I listened to that. And that's a song that's also overplayed. But, man, what a well-written song. You know what I mean? Like this was very, they were very sensible with the way they were writing. And this, the cool thing about this album is there's got some, there's some killer deep tracks. And Of Wolf and Man could potentially be my favorite Metallica song. I love that song. Through the Never, Holier Than Now, Don't Tread on Me. Um, and you know what Metallica benefited from with this is the timing. They put it out at the exact right time. If, if Nevermind would have came out first and this came out in 92, it may not have been as big as it was. So this, this caught, this was right out of the gate before all the grunge thing took over. Um, and so it was just the perfect album at the perfect time, the perfect band, the perfect storm. And it's just killer, man. I don't care what anybody says. I love it. Dude, I, it's by far my favorite Metallica album, obviously, because it's, it's got, like, exactly what you said, pop thrash. Yep. It's, it's exactly what that is. It's catchy, thrash, hard rock, whatever you want to call it. To, to kind of prove that, my mom said, hey, what's that band that sings that Never Never Land song? <laughs> I mean, if you get, a, if, if you get a, a, a 40-something-year-old housewife saying that, um, there's a little bit of like airplay going on there. So yeah. between that, between that and sad, but true is actually my choice cut on the, album. Oh, I know it's it. a hit, but like, dude, that, that riff and those, that drum intro is so sick. Um, and then, God, Oh yeah. I actually bought the album when it came out and I was a kid, you know, like yeah. I was, I was a young kid and I was just like, I have to have it. So, um, it's the band, it's the album that a lot of the hardcore guys think they sold out or whatever sure. and you got headfield say yeah we sold out every seat in the arena every night yeah <laughs> and it's true it's it's true that it's, it's this album is killer and i i couldn't agree more with the the time because at that time you had the razor's edge acdc uh live as well guns and roses and metallica and that was like yep all the rage yep. you know what i mean it was just everybody knew those three bands and they were like edgier and it wasn't eighties hard rock anymore. It was like something different. Yep. So I, 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 I'm super pumped that you put that at, at number one, dude. Like you, you deserve that as your number one. Cause I know that was like a turning point for you. So it's, yeah. it's pretty cool. And I think I like it now more than I did when I was younger because I had some of them. I might've had all of them at that point before this album came out. And you know, even I was like, Whoa, this sounds different. These guys definitely Maybe I was believing it too. I was drinking the Kool Aid. These guys kind of sold out, but you know, after a while, I the, I the album sunk in and I got into it. But now, as an adult, when I go back to it, it's pretty much got everything that I love. I love well-written songs. I love catchy songs, and I love heavy music. So it's the perfect pairing. And one other band, 
I said all these bands tried to make a black album and failed. One one band that actually took this same concept and, and applied it and actually succeeded was Megadeth with um, Countdown to Extinction. They did pretty well with um, toning it down and, and you know focusing more on songwriting and things like that. So Mattel, so Megadeth did pretty good, kind of taking a, a page out of Metallica's uh, whatever you want to call it playbook. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> but yeah, it's a great album, yeah. man. And uh, like I said, I just listened to it last night again and. It really, I hadn't heard it in a long time, and it blew me away. It was almost like hearing it for the first time again. So, you know, well done, Metallica. Nice. Well done. Yeah, you got to go for the poor man's Metallica and listen to Testament now. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're sick of that era of Metallica, you're like, all right, I'll go to Testament. But, yeah, I, that's awesome. I'm still hung up that I screwed up my one of my favorite bands of all time, Steelheart. I can't believe I did that. I was so excited when I saw that it was released in 91, and I should have gone with my gut and been like, no, nah, I'm pretty sure it was 90. But... <laughs> And I didn't want to correct you, but I'm like, I know there's so many nerds that listen to this. They're screaming, no, that was not 1991. That was 90. That was 90. I delegitimized all my weird, deep down knowledge. Oh, gosh. What am I going to do? Dude, you had everybody hooked with the uh, BB Steel, and then you just blew it with with the wrong year. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, this was a fun one. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's great talking to you. Same here, brother. I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you jumped on with me. Well, that was great. Looking back on 1991, I hope you enjoyed it. Rock on!